Artlist.io. Every single day I feel the pressure. Double up the work, let's make it extra. Working so my mother get a rest, yo. Working like I never know I'm best, yo. Every single day I feel the pressure. Hey, hey, welcome back. Welcome back to That One Studio here on the What Are You Made Of show. It's your boy, C-Rock in the building. I uh, got another great guest for you today, and I just want to first start off by thanking you f- for, you know, the support that you all give me and the guests that we have. It's, it means the world to me to be able to do this. I, I always wanted to be a sports broadcaster growing up, and, and you know, I ended up in podcasting, which is, you know, entrepreneur. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship when I was a kid. And uh, now I don't do sports necessarily. I watch a lot of sports, but we're talking entrepreneurs now and really talking about performance and what goes into making people success. And that's what we do here on the What Are You Made Of show. Today, I have Dr. Noor Ali in the building, and I got her bio here because, look, we uh, we do things differently sometimes. We have sometimes come through email and then they go places, and uh, but I got it now. We're, we're on point today. Dr. Noor is a Bangladeshi American medical doctor turned health insurance expert from New York City. She currently runs her own health insurance consulting practice out of Tampa, Florida, offering healthcare insurance strategy to female founders all over the nation. She's also the founder of Think Like a Woman, a platform designed to amplify the aspirations and ambitions of female founders worldwide. She hosts a highly curated roundtable business networking brunch called the, how do you pronounce that? Impressaria? Yeah, Impressaria. Impressaria? Impressaria Brunch Experience. When she is not working on managing her current businesses or her building her next retail venture, you can find her curled up in bed with a good fiction book. Oh, so you like fiction books, huh? I love fiction. Yeah. Do you read any nonfiction books? I do. I definitely do. You know, keep myself growing and, you know, developing personally and expanding my business. But really, my escape is going to be a good fiction read. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't read a fiction book in a while. I think of Vince, like, I have all these nonfiction books stacked up, like in line, trying to get to all of them. And it's some of them are like thick. And I just, uh, I don't know. I think I get my fiction from uh, Netflix. Yeah, no, that's totally cool. I feel like nonfiction feels like work to me. It's like I just worked all day. I just want to read about like dragons and escape from my reality right now. So I'll pick yeah. up a book at night. Yeah, I love it. All right, well, let's start the show the right way. Dr. Ali, what are you made of? I am made of persistent optimism. Mike, you cannot get me down. No matter what happens, I will always get back up. And um, it's really hard to get me to see the negative side of things. I always see the positive. Now you think that is you think that's a natural thing, or is it something that you 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 know through experience you've developed, or do you think you were? I would born definitely with it? say it's innate. I feel like it's something that's always been inside of me. You know, I've been in really tough situations, adversity, culture shocks, reverse culture shocks, and I've always held on to kind of what's inside me. Um, and you know, made the best of that situation, and I knew that the best is yet to come. Always. So take us through some specific culture shock and then reverse culture shock, so the audience understands kind of specifically what you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I was born in Bangladesh, my home country. Um, When I was three months old, my dad kind of uh, left the country, immigrated to America to build a better life for me and my mom. And I I didn't see him for six years. So I kind of grew up without a dad. And my grandfather was a big role model in my life. Um, He was an anesthesiologist. I really looked up to him. So my childhood consisted of my grandfather being this really influential power player, father figure. Um, and my mom trying to just kind of single momming and navigating life while we waited to be together with my dad. Um, so then we moved to uh, New York City in 1995. I was like five, almost six years old. And that's the first time I really had a relationship with my dad. Um, so that was tough. You know, we still don't really get along to this day because I feel like we didn't have that 
foundational relationship going growing up. Um, so grew up in uh, New York City. I did really well in school because of my my grandfather's influence when I was young. Um, I knew everybody knew that oh she's going to be a doctor when she grows up. I'm like yeah yeah that's definitely going to happen. So my educational trajectory is fast tracked and propelled towards medicine. So in middle school I'm taking high school courses and high school I'm taking you know advanced college courses. So I'm 18 years old, about to start my college career when we get this phone call. My grandfather's died. You know he passed away. So then my dad says, oh we all have to move back to Bangladesh now. So I had this entire kind of, you know, upbringing in New York City. Now I'm thrown back into Bangladesh where I had this culture shock because I don't speak the language. I can't speak to my peers. Um, I went to this accelerated medical program. I skipped undergrad altogether, but I really struggled just to survive. You know, I, I, I faced starvation. I couldn't eat the food. I was trying to make it through medical school and do well, but I couldn't eat. Um, I had communication issues. We were living in a really low resource campus, so I had to pump my own water out of the ground. I had to carry it up six flights of stairs. There's no elevators. They shut off electricity at 4 p.m. every single day just to, to manage the electric load. So throughout that entire time, and remember, I grew up in New York City. I'm from America. So these things are really hard for me just to, to balance. But I thrived in, in school. Despite all of those challenges, I graduated top three in my class with a very promising surgical career. Um, so all of that was really, really hard. But the entire time, I was thinking there, there ha it has to get better than this. It has to get better than this. You know, I kept that, that persistent optimism no matter what happened. Yeah. So how did you thrive in school not knowing the language? Like you had to take the language class as well? Yeah, so I, that... I'm, I know Bengali. I can speak Bengali, but learning medicine in a different language is, is challenging. So medicine is, is universal. Our textbooks were English, so I'm understanding it. But our teachers are trying to teach us and our professors are communicating not just in English and Bengali as well. Um, the testing is in English, but again, that, that teaching aspect was challenging. So I did well because I feel like I'm reading the textbooks myself and I'm self-learning. My challenge was really communicating with my peers and, and professors. That was the hard part. And I got better, you know, the year one was really hard. Year two was really hard. Things got better with paraclinical studies from, from year three onwards. And so how many years did you stay there once you went back? Yeah. So I was there for six years. The entire six years was an accelerated medical surgical program. So I got a dual degree in internal medicine, general surgery. Now in low resource countries like Bangladesh, there's way too many people. It's very overpopulated and not a lot of doctors. So the way we're trained is if any patient comes to us with any problem, we have to be able to treat it. So I can do C-sections, deliveries. I can treat a stroke. I can manage heart attack. I, I can, you know, do general surgery cases, appendicectomies. I can do it all. So that made you a better doctor then? It definitely made me a better doctor. And with, with no technology, you know, when I was there, the, you know, we didn't have laptops. Everything was tested in paper and pencil. We had oral examinations. Um, we're reading non-digital x-rays. We didn't have access to MRIs to scan. So we had to use our, our hands. I, that's how I trained and I learned is, I use my hands to diagnose, not technology. Wow, man. And so what, what was the biggest challenge studying medicine? What was the biggest challenge for you, like as far as besides the language barrier and what have you, but the, the, the concepts and what have you, like what was the thing that you just couldn't grasp until, or you eventually did, but what was the hardest part? Honestly, medicine was not hard for me at all, Mike. It was, it was everything except the medicine. It was the people, the relationships, the food, the, the culture, the lifestyle, the communication. Everything was hard. The mosquitoes, you know, like those little things made it difficult just for me to stay alive. But my passion for learning, for medicine, for education is what kept me going. I did not find that challenging at all. 
And was there any fun? Like, did you did you have fun? And <laughs> did you have friendships that that you know that thrived and flourished? Um, I had friendships, very, very, very little fun. Uh, medical school itself, you don't have a whole lot of time for fun and social life. And an accelerated program, you have even less time. And during my my one day off per month, I I, I did that to develop um, this community project where I gave free antenatal care to slum dwelling women all over the slums of Bangladesh. So during my downtime, I was also doing work, um, and that project was awarded on by the United Nations in 2014. So fun was very, very scarce. And because of that, everybody was depressed, you know, that that's normal. And the relationships that I had to make were, were just to, again, to survive. Um, some of them I still talk to today, but they're not the quality friendships and relationships that I would want to endorse for, you know, myself or others. It was just, just to survive. And, and, you know, thinking what's going through my head is the fact that you've seen both New York city, you've seen there. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be slums. It really doesn't. Like there's answers. Yeah. But it's almost yeah. like there's something or some group of people or someone that wants it that way. Yeah, I'm really glad that what you are your mentioned thoughts that. On that? Uh, yeah, because I've worked with all types of populations at all socioeconomic levels. And what I've learned that everyone craves and deserves representation, right? Those people living in the slums, they want to be seen, loved, heard. They want their needs met, just like the millionaires and billionaires are some of my clients today, they want the same thing, access to quality health care to be seen, loved, and taken care of. Um, but you're right. It depends on the environment and um, the politics and the group of people who are in charge, who are the decision makers that determine these outcomes. But everybody wants the same thing at the end of the day. And in doing medicine, did you study mental health and psychiatry and psychology and all that as well so that you're able to yeah. you know, address those as well? Yeah, that was a portion of my studies. Um, the focus of my curriculum was really internal medicine, general surgery, um, and then OBGYN as well. But that, yeah, that was part as well. Gotcha. Yeah, because here's the thing. What I see is I see that there's there's emotion and there's misemotion. And this misemotion is more the, the destructive emotions, right? And as long as we're staying chronically in those misemotion ranges, things get destroyed and, and, and fall apart. And it seems to me as if we could figure out a way to get people out of those misemotions chronically, acutely, you're going to be in misemotion sometimes. We're going to get angry. You're going to get fearful. But chronically, if we can figure out a way to bring that up for the majority of people, things will start to thrive and turn around. And, and so I know I didn't really want to get on this topic. Or I, didn't, I didn't have intention to get on this topic until you started talking about that in the slums and all the stuff that you went through to to be there. And it just seems like it really kind of bothers me that, that there's an answer and, and yet nothing happens. I think a lot of it you depends know? on, I think all of it depends on the individual, right? Like, you know, you, you have this understanding, you have this desire to expand upon this understanding, to get, to seek out new knowledge and understand how to manage emotion better to, to get rid of or, or reduce misemotion. But you have to have that desire. You have to want to do it. You know, not everybody has that in the world. And, and I think that's the problem because the change makers are the one who have that thirst and desire to problem solve. Yeah. And, and I think there's also a lack of knowledge, like understanding yeah. that leads into the thing where once you know it, it's like, why would I ever want to be anything different than that? Yeah. Yeah. You know? exactly. So what was that? What was the change of or, or what, what led to you leaving there? Like, can you yeah. talk about that part? It, um, love actually. Um, so I was in my final year of medical school doing really well, focused and, 
um, just at the cusp, you know, it's a final stretch. I made it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And I have a lot of eyes and attention on me because I'm performing really well. I'm a really good surgeon and my professors are, are offering me job opportunities and, and bigger facilities. Um, when this man that I met six years ago, um, uh, kind of finds me halfway across the globe. And he saw the first time we met, you know, I was dancing at his sister's wedding and, um, we hadn't really communicated since then, but he remembered me all those years. Um, and then all of a sudden he just wants to connect again. And my immediate response is absolutely not. I'm in like one of the most important pivotal times of my career. This is not a time for me to engage in a new relationship, especially since I, I haven't talked to you in like six years. Um, but anyways, he decides that, well, let me just, you know, come visit you, come see you and let's see where things go. And by this time we were communicating online, um, for, for a while. So he comes to visit in Bangladesh. He's Bengali as well. He has some family members. He comes to visit me and my family. And during, uh, you know, dinner or, or that conversation that evening, my, my father asks, um, well, what are your intentions with my daughter? Like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And he's like, well, you know, I like her. Da, da, da. And my dad's like, well, you know, if, if you want to kind of continue this, I'm going to have to ask you to commit to marrying her. And my husband, you know, not my husband at the time was like, well, can I have some time to think about it? And my father says, um, yeah, sure. I'll give you guys 15 minutes. So that conversation <laughs> happened on a Wednesday evening and by Friday we were married and that was the most whirlwind wow. event that ever happened. But this happened uh, near 11 years ago now. So we're still married. Uh, we're doing great. We've got a little three-year-old boy, almost four. And, you know, it, it was just, it was one of those things, you know, when I tell this story, it sounds absolutely absurd. Like, Nor, what the hell were you thinking? I'm in medical school. He has a full-time working job back in New York. So we get married. We go back to our respective lives. I'm back to doing final examinations at my college campus in medical school. He goes back to his life in New York. And we have a long-distance marriage for two years, which is the worst thing ever. Please don't do that if you listen to this, if you're listening. Um, but after two years go by, now I have to be with my husband, right? It's time for me to move back. So I leave Bangladesh. I complete my training. I go back to America to be with my husband and back in New York City. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I don't mean to cut you off, but I got to yeah. know something. You're going yeah. so fast here because I like just like the uh, marriage happened. So, yeah. so did you know that you wanted to marry him at that time when your dad said that? It was just annoying. Like when he asked us, like when we discussed that 15 minute convert time that we had to discuss. The conversation went something like, well, I'm not here because I don't want to be with you. And I was like, well, I don't not like you. You know what I mean? Like this, it seemed like a very natural next step. It was one of those deep knowings that you just know, like, okay, this is the person for me, even though none, this is a very non-traditional way of going about things. Yeah. It, it was just a deep knowing from both of our parts. Yeah. Because sometimes like, you know, especially when we're younger, it, there's some infatuation or, yeah. you know, and that can cloud the logical thinking, I guess, you know, yeah. the rational thinking. So, okay. So I got that. And <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my, so in, in Bangladesh, is it, yeah. is it uh common, like fathers want their daughters to marry other Bengalis? Yeah. I mean, in my, my family, I think, um, it was just an expectation to marry someone from our culture and religion. And I would have wanted that too. Like, I just feel like I'm a very culturally uh, plugged in and involved person. I wanted someone to, to know my family and be able to communicate with them and be involved in our cultural practices. So that was important to me. I knew that yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be with anyone outside of, you know, my race and culture. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Want, yeah, and then, and then going from there, 
You yeah, came and back we both have very you, similar you, upbringings too, like New York City. It's not like we were complete random strangers. You know, we had a lot in common, and w- there's a reason we're probably still married. Um, yeah. Right. So now I moved back to the states, and uh, so so mind you, now I just you know fin- I, I was just ending or beginning a very promising surgical career. Right, I'm a general surgeon, and the way it works for foreign doctors now I'm foreign, right? Because even though I grew up in the states, I'm, I'm I, my education is not from the states anymore. For foreign doctors, I don't have to go through medical school again, but I have to pass a series of licensing exams in order to practice surgery in the States. The first of those series of exams called the step one was a huge disconnect. The content of that exam was really like basic sciences, stuff that I had studied now like seven, eight years ago, right? So, you know, enzymes of the Krebs cycle, shit like that. Um, And I struggled with that. I, I studied for about two years and there was just, I was a new relationship, right? This is the first time I'm living together with my husband. I'm not really working. I'm just studying full time. There are so many variables, you know, to go into that. And I, and I really struggled and I failed that exam by one question, three points. Mm. And that crushed everything that I had in me. I lost all sense of professional identity. I knew nothing outside of medicine and surgery because I skipped undergrad. I went from high school to medical school. So I had no education. I had no confidence in how to do anything. At that time, I didn't know how to write a resume. I'm 23 years old, 23, 24, very young, not a lot of life experience because I left America when I was 18. When I'm trying to get jobs on high school, excuse me, on paper, I look like a high school graduate. So no one is giving me any opportunities when I'm this very, you know, accomplished and capable surgeon. That took everything out of me. And I needed a win in my life at that time. I didn't care what I did. I just needed something that that made me feel like okay you're you're worth living you know you should stay alive because you're worth it so we had to make some changes in our lives and at that time you know we thought all right let's just you know move down to sunny florida and have a change his parents live there we'll get some support maybe we'll build a family maybe i'll have a new career direction and change um so that's what brought me down to um florida at age 26 wow and then so at that point, eventually you passed the what you needed to pass to become a doctor and you started practicing in the United States, right? I did not. Um, so at that time, I had a decision to make. So I was studying okay. for two years and I said, hey, you know, I could go back to the drawing board. I could study again, try to pass this exam. But I didn't want to do that because of how miserable I was. I said, I, do yeah, not, I don't yeah. want to go through that again. I need a win in my life. I just need to feel like I'm capable again. So the only company or the only opportunity that I got was a sales role uh, for health insurance. Because, you know, in sales, you don't need a whole lot of education. Yet here I was, this extremely educated woman. And I also got a master's, by the way, and a graduate certificate in infection control. So not just a dual doctorate degree. I had several other degrees after that as well and certifications. But I'm in the sales environment because that's the only place that will give me an opportunity. And I just thought, I, I need to make this work. I don't know what, I don't know anything about health insurance. They didn't teach this in medical school. And where I studied and trained, there's no insurance system, period. Uh, so it was very foreign to me, but I thought to myself, hey, it's got to be easier than, than medical school. And it was. Um, so that's, that's what brought me into the career. And then within about a year and a half, two years in, I just looked around and I said, hey, I am so much more intelligent and capable than my peers around me. I got to figure out a way to, to do this differently, to do this better, to, make, to set myself apart. Um, and when I started really stepping into personal branding and, you know, using my background to, to just tie everything in together. That's really when, you know, life and business really started flourishing and exploding for me. Yeah. 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 So I want to, I want to talk about that part now because you could be in health insurance 
and just be a commodity and a person that's just run of the mill health insurance salesperson, but you decided to differentiate yourself. Do you decided to not be a com uh, like commoditized just decided to have a personal brand. And how, how long ago was that when you started working really on your personal brand? I want to say three years, three and three plus years. Okay. And so did you get mentorship for that? Or did you see somebody else talking about that? And that's when you like a, a light bulb went off or did you just know that I need to step, step out. And then when you decided that, like, did you know how to do it? Yeah. Um, all I knew is I need to step out. I didn't know how to do it, but I'm very resourceful and education. If you haven't noticed by now is, is a top core value of mine. And I invest in my education. So I decided to invest in courses and teachings and learnings. I invested tens of thousands of dollars in courses to learn one, how to set myself apart, but two, how to like bend my time, how to uh, expand myself and reduce my time in my business so I can free up my time to build other businesses. Um, so I invested in that education. I learned and I figured it out. I didn't know how I, at that time. And so when you decided that and you started going after it, like what, what did you notice? Like when was the first thing you noticed like when you started to get known, right, for what you're doing? Because yeah. it's very important. You got a great niche and you have to have a niche. But yeah. um, what, when was the first like advantage from having that personal brand that you noticed? Um, I noticed it from, from the get-go. What I think my biggest mistake or challenge that I was doing is when I just realized that, hey, I'm onto something. And I was very eager to share it with my peers. Like, hey, guys, you should do this too. Like, this is cool. This is going to, you know, be big or this is really going to help your career in the long term. Um, everybody looked at me like, you're crazy. Or, you know, that's just not the way we do things here, Nor. This is how health insurance is done or it's sold. But I'm like, but no, 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 no. What if we deconstructed the process and we evaluated and, you know, we, we made the customer experience journey better and, and whatever. And no one responded to my excitement. They still don't, you know. Um, and that was hard for me to reconcile because I knew that I was onto something. And for a year, I tried to like shove it down the throats of like the people around me. Um, and, be and because I didn't get the response or the reaction I wanted, it, I was like, I started doubting myself. And I said, is this really it? But again, just, you know, as you hear from my life story, like deep inside, I always kind of hold on to that persistent optimism that no, this is it. This is going to work out. I don't care if nobody else is doing it. I know that this, I'm doing, I'm onto something. I'm doing the right thing. So just staying on that course and being consistent and believing in myself when nobody else did has been great. And so you, do you have a podcast yourself? I don't. Have you, you haven't started one yet? No. <laughs> I uh, love it. Yeah, I, I say yet, but you've been on plenty, right? I've been on plenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you definitely, and the thing is, is like, I, I started being on shows first. I've been on over 900 now, 920, wow. 30, something like that in the last oh, four years. But like I, I started going on shows first and then I started my own show because I saw what I did like and what I didn't like. And, mm. and then I cultivated my own thing. And then I figured out how to do some things with it. Um, whether it was using the show for, you know, relationship building, networking, exposure, like all these, these different things. But nonetheless, what is being on podcasts as a guest done for you? And by the way, how, for, before you answer that, how many have you been on, you think? Um, close to 60 now, 60 plus. Okay. And so what yeah. has it done for you and your business or you, you personally? Yeah, it's huge. It's been so huge because I get a chance to share my story uh, with you and your audience. I get a chance to showcase my expertise, how I set myself apart. And I think it's very evident when I speak that I am not just a normal insurance saleswoman. I am very, very different. And I want you to know that. I want to be able to express that in a very low 
lift effort for me. All I had to do, Mike, was click a button to get on the show with you. And you're going to do all of the work to share my story with the world. So I love that. Well, you, you're doing some work by talking and, and, you, and you do it eloquently. So, you know, I think that helps, but <laughs> it makes my job easy. Um, but yeah, so I, I love that. And I think that, you know, for you, like you have, you, like what you're saying is you, you have that, you have that it factor to be able to do that. Like not everybody has that. And so for me, when I woke up in the morning one day, I was like, I have this thing. I think, you know, you have this too. I have this thing. And if I don't get this out there and I don't perform with this ability that I have, I'm not serving my creator. I I feel like it's a slap in the face to my creator. I can't do that. So I look at it as an obligation, Mm. right? And, and see you, you make money to sell health insurance, right? Or direct people into the right way. But at the end of the day, it's more of a service thing. And the way you're doing it is not just, Hey, this is the packages, pick a package. You're actually pouring into people. And so how, how much does service mean to you? Like being able to serve people and being fulfilled with that. Oh, oh my gosh. It's everything. I'm so glad you said that word. Um, my top three values, which I built my personal brand around are education, love, and service. So education, as you know, is very important to me. I don't think I'll ever stop. Um, my husband jokes all the time. Like, when am I going to be married to, to not a student? I'm like, I don't know. I, I was, I graduated my master's program being like nine and a half months pregnant, like December, end of December, I had a baby January 15th. So it's just been a gap of maybe two years where I wasn't in some form of education, institutionalized education. Um, so that's important to me. Love. I do everything with so much love. I love my family. I love my clients. I love everybody that I interact with. Um, and lastly, that service piece. I feel like I feel most fulfilled when I am giving and serving. Um, specifically when it comes to insurance, you know, there's a point that you, you noted. I don't, if you see in my, my content and, and website and any of my marketing, there is not one mention of a single insurance company because that's not the focus. The focus is the service that I'm going to provide to you. It has nothing to do with the insurance company at all, actually. So yeah, serving makes me feel fulfilled. Yeah. And you know, I love that. I love it. So what's the vision from here? Like what, if I could snap my fingers and make it happen, what's it look like? What, what are you going towards? There's, there's something really, really big that I'm going towards Mike. And I can't even define it because I think it's too big for my current imagination to hold right now. Um, so my next projects that I'm working on um, is think like a woman, which is my brand of impact. I just got back from Miami yesterday from hosting an event. Um, the events are super duper special. The ladies love it. it it's, it's highly curated in-person business networking where I offer, um, you know, a brunch experience with three course, fine dining meal, unlimited drinks, um, curated guests at the table. They show up, um, you know, embodying their next level selves. We talk about business problems and solutions. There's people at the table who has an active solution to a problem that you have. Um, you know, it's, it's really a lot of fun. It, it was great. And I'm still kind of like buzzing from the hype of that. So I want to host more of those events next year. I have an entire lineup. So that's very important to me. Um, and then my next venture is I'm trying to enter the retail space with a lifestyle brand offering, um, fragrance and fashion. And I know absolutely nothing about any of that, but I know I'm going to that, figure that's it That's okay. No, that's okay. Because you're one of your core values is education. So you can go learn it. I'm going to learn it. Exactly. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. All right, guys, listen, go check out Dr. Noor Ali. But where's the best place? Is it Instagram you want, you want to send people to or where do you want to yeah, send people? Instagram is great, guys. You can see like my life. It's a reality show through my stories. I'm on stories all the time. You get a behind the scenes um, peek into my life. So that's D-R dot N-O-O-R-H-E-A-L-T-H. 
Um, and then think like a woman as well. Think dot like a woman. All right, guys, go check it out. Dr. Dot Noor Health on Instagram. Dr. Noor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so Hang fun. tight while I wrap this up, okay? Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening, watching, however you're consuming this content. I really appreciate it. Go check out thatonemerch.com. We do have ta- the, the now, the, 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 this is like the, the, my favorite whole part of uh, the, you know, establishing a brand is the merch, man. Hats, T-shirts, hoodies, quality stuff that you can wear, and then you can feel like you're that one. And for just those that don't know about that one, that one is about stepping into who you are authentically. I know Dr. Norris said something about identifying as a medical professional at some point, but at the end of the day, it's not what we do that makes us who we are. It's who you are that makes you who you are. And the vehicles that we take to get to our mission are not who we are. So it's something to remember. Being that one is finding out who you are and leaning into it unapologetically, letting that that light shine. And that's what it's all about. So go check out that one merch.com and gather your gear it's your boy c-rock until next time be that one one second dr nor i wish i would die i felt it.